We are going chapter by chapter through the Bible. And we're all the way in Isaiah 56 this evening. So let's go to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. Anyone need a Bible? If you do, raise your hand. Isaiah 56 will be in verse 1. But before we begin, let's pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord, that we can come to you and open up our hearts, Lord, that uh, everything, Lord, in there that needs to be exposed will be brought out, Lord, that... um, if, we, if there's encouragement that is needed, that will be encouraged. If there's, Lord, a warning that needs to be given, Lord, that's why we're here opening up your word, because we want you to speak with us, Lord. We just pray that you make it black and white to us this evening, what your truth is. Darkness and light, heaven and hell, judgment, sin, righteousness, Lord, that you just speak to us in that way. And Father, we we thank you. We want to be worshipers. Your word says that you seek those who worship you in spirit and in truth, Lord. And we pray that you would fill us with the spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the truth so that we're worshiping someone a God that we know, Lord, that we know the truth about. And Father, we do pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 56, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who lays hold on it. So uh, chapter 56 really is a continuation of chapters 54 and 55. Chapter 53 was all about the crucifixion of Jesus, his suffering on the cross, also his resurrection, and there's this picture of just the Messiah and his torment on the cross. At the end of chapter 52, we just says that he was unrecognizable when he was there, that he was more marred than any man. And, and out of that picture of the cross, out of that gory scene, that bloody scene, the bloody cross, which it says we looked at him in chapter 53, and it says we despised him and we rejected him. But out of that, because he paid for our sin, because he was resurrected for our justification, you see the fruit in chapters 54 through 56. And I was with Pastor Greg last night, we were praying, and he was just sharing with me how this past week he was uh, just really meditating on chapters 54 and 55. And I got to tell you, if you're choosing chapters in the Bible to meditate on, few can be better than those two chapters because they are all the promises uh, that 
flow forth from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, a saving relationship for, uh, with um, any man or woman who puts their trust in what happened in Isaiah 53. So it's just perfectly ordered there. You put your trust in that Messiah who is described in chapter 53 and chapter 4, chapter, uh, chapter 54, chapter 55, and also chapter 56 um, will will be the promises that you'll be able to uh, lay hold of. And so uh, chapter 56 just sort of is a continuation. Uh, it begins, rather, as a, a sort of a continuation of some of what we read, some of the promises of God, some of the um, exhortations. It says, keep justice and do righteousness for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So as we've talked about throughout the book of Isaiah, there's a near-term fulfillment. There's more of a long-term fulfillment. The near-term fulfillment in a lot of the book of Isaiah is that he's speaking here in these latter chapters about those who are in captivity in Babylon. They've been taken prisoner and sort of dragged there against their will. Their city, Jerusalem, has been... Uh, has been burned to the ground <clears throat> and there's just an exhortation here to not only lay hold of those promises in chapters 54 and chapter 55 but while you're waiting on these things to happen and some of the promises that we read about in chapter you know 54 that look you you know, if you follow the Lord, great shall be the peace of your children. If you follow the Lord, your righteousness shall be established. If you follow the Lord, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. But while you're waiting on those things, regardless of what may be going on in your life, keep justice and do righteousness. First Peter is a very interesting book in the New Testament. It was actually written scholars believe, at the time or right after the time that the Caesar, Nero, burned down Rome. He's a crazy man, uh, the emperor. Uh, he burned Rome down, and then he blamed it on the Christians. And th the Christians were just grievously persecuted at the time. And it's, it's, and he writes to them, and some of you are familiar with some of those passages. Don't consider it strange, Peter wrote to them, this season of suffering that you're in. But interesting, so they were, they were suffering tremendously, but interestingly enough, throughout the book, there's also an exhortation to be holy. Be holy, even as I am holy. And it's kind of interesting, right? You, sometimes you wouldn't think, that when you're writing to someone who's in a period of great, great suffering, you know, the last thing is, you know, an exhortation to be holy. It's more like, you know, a pat on the back or compassion, encouragement. But 
This wonderful thing about the Word of God, that, that, that he just comes in there and he really exhorts them, be holy. And during a time of suffering, during a time of gr- when you're waiting and it seems like you've been waiting forever, in a time of, uh, of trial, be holy. Chapter 56 here, verse 1. Keep justice and do righteousness. Just because everything is not going the way that you planned, uh, don't walk away from justice. Don't all of a sudden start uh, doing things your own way. It says, for my salvation is about to come. And indeed, it will. At the end of 70 years in Babylon, they were taken back to uh, they were taken back to Jerusalem, and and, and the Lord uh, really brought about a deliverance, a salvation there. So keep justice. Do right. If you're here this evening in your season of of affliction, of where the circumstances around you have caused you to be fearful or confused and not knowing what is in the future, don't go and flesh out. Sometimes. That, you know, that sin, which is pleasurable for a season, the Bible says, is, is our response to being frustrated with the circumstances in, that we're in. But no, keep righteous, justice and do righteousness, he says. Then verse three is, there's sort of a, a change here and it's, it, 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 there's an interesting interesting sort of change in direction of the prophetic voice. He says, do not let the son of a foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. So the son of a foreigner is just uh, a foreigner, a non-Jew living me, living amongst the Jews and saying, oh, there's these people, they're God's children. I guess I'm separated from them. I guess I cannot be a part of them. Nor let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. In other words, a eunuch, uh, someone who has, uh, you know, been maimed or, or, or disfigured or, or, you know, eunuchs, Actually, in the Old Testament law and Levitical law, they were not able to be priests. Uh, it, it, they were not able to be priests. And the reason for that, you read that sometimes in, in Leviticus and you say, well, that seems kind of unfair. But remember that that whole priesthood, it's a type of Christ and it's a foreshadowing of Christ. And so, you know, some eunuchs may have been tempted to say, well, I can just never really be a part of this people. And the Lord says, you know, don't think like that, a son of a foreigner, if you're a eunuch. It, it says, you hold fast to my covenant, verse 5, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name. So I will give them a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I just can't, I can't tell you how often I am in a counseling session with someone who just thinks they just think they're under some sort of curse. 
There's some defect in their salvation. There's something about them that they'll never really be a part of the church. They look around. It's amazing. It never ceases to amaze me. And, and I know what this mentality, where it's coming from, because I've been in this place myself where people will come in here, particular, particularly people who aren't familiar with church, and they'll just look around, and, and they just have this thing that every single person they see has got a halo over their head. They just really, really are convinced that th- these people are holy, flawless, churchy kind of people. And, and just, just as the eunuch here, just as the son of, son of the foreigner here, um, they, they say in their heart, verse three, you know, I'm separated from these people. I could never be one of these people. They're, I could never be accepted by them. And it's saying the Lord, it, 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 the, the word here is, no, you're wrong. Anyone who holds fast to my covenant. And, and in the New Testament, we were told, actually, was it Isaiah 49, that Jesus is the new covenant. Anyone who lays hold of Christ to them, verse 5, I will give my house. I will give them an everlasting name. They shall not be cut off. It's a beautiful picture, really, uh, of, of just... The, the Lord and the fact that, yes, he raised up Israel to be uh, the, the, you know, to establish the line of the Messiah and to be a light to the world, but he raised them up so the whole world would be drawn to him. Verse 6, also the son of the foreigner who joins himself to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt, burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, Jesus quotes this verse. When he comes into Jerusalem for the last time, or for the last time, his, his first time physically on the earth, and he goes into the temple, and he takes a scourge, he wipes out, you know, the money changers, he drives them out of there, he, he drives the, the, the people who were really using the the house of God as a place for personal profit. Worse than that, it made it a den of thieves, a place where uh, people were being taken advantage of. People were traveling from all over the world to get a glimpse of God, and rather than a glimpse of God, they were just seeing nothing, something that was no different than the world. And I find it fascinating that Jesus quotes this verse. You know, what he was so upset about was the fact that non-Jews, people from all nations, people from all over the world, were coming and they were seeing a misrepresentation of who God and his people were. That's what got him so upset. 
He was filled with anger because God had been misrepresented and this prophecy that his house would be a house of prayer for all nations, they were getting in the way. They were preventing the the fullness of this prophecy from being fulfilled because the Gentiles would come and say, oh, this is just like the city I came from. You know, it's just, this is no different. There's the, the, you know, the inside the church, they're, they're just hypocrites. That's all they, that's all they are. So people, uh, Jesus there, really you see them w- with the, uh, his ministry was, as by his own words, for the lost tribes of Israel, but you see his heart there really for the whole world. Verse eight, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of um, Israel says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. So speaking here of of Gentiles, that he's going to, there will come a time when he was would be gathering them in. Verse 9, all you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest, his watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. So verse 10 is talking about the shepherds, the priests, those who are uh, responsible for shepherding the people. You know, it says at the end of verse 10, they're just sleeping, they're lying down, they're loving to slumber. And and, and just, you know, a minister of the Lord, a, a person who serves the Lord and his people, should be the hardest working man or woman really in the world. <laughs> just tirelessly working for the Lord. I was just, this is really cool, this this morning going through the book of Luke, Luke chapter 4, Jesus pulling an all-nighter. Did you notice that? It says at the evening, at the evening hour, in the evening, it says all the sick and those who were diseased of the region came to him, and it says every single one of them he healed. And then it says, then when day came, he went to a deserted place to to seek the Lord, to be with the Lord. I'm not saying that those in ministry shouldn't take a break and, and be refreshed by the Lord. That's not what I'm saying, but what a picture there of hard work. God's people should be the hardest working people on the face of the earth. And and I'm not only talking, of course, just, it, you know, in, in, in the context of ministry, although this is what that is talking about, but at work, you should be known as the hardest working person at your workplace. I'm not talking about working 90 hours a week and neglecting your family or anything like that, but... but um, but just hard work and, and, and just ministering to the people of God here. But here the, the priests, the, the shepherds of Israel, they're, they're sleeping, they're lying da- down, they're loving to slumber. You know, I, I don't know, most every Sunday afternoon, I'm, I'm here to 3.30, 4 o'clock or, or beyond, and it's because the sheep are hurting. The sheep need direction. The sheep need counsel. And, 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 and the servants of the Lord need to be there. 
need to be there, you know, when, uh, you know, when the sheep are, are hurting. Verse 11, yes, they are greedy dogs, which never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain from his own territory. I tell you, when the shepherds of God are just looking for gain, when they're looking just for their own territory, for their own piece of the pie, uh, the, the nation is in a very low state. So Isaiah, not an easy prophet to read here. You really have sort of the, the prophecy here is of Isaiah is not in chronological order. And so here towards the end of chapter 56, really there, it's going back here to pre-exile. Scholars think it's in the reign of the Manasseh. He's probably rebuking those pri- uh, priests, uh, that, and priests and prophets who were living prior to the time that Jerusalem was destroyed here. Cause it certainly really doesn't, uh, describe the, you know, the, 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 the priesthood actually ceased to exist once they went off to Babylon. So, uh, you, are always having, when you go through the prophets, you're always having to seek the Lord. Okay, Lord, what's the context here? Verse 12. Come, one says, I will bring wine and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. And, and so we read last week, seek the Lord in verse six of chapter 55, while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Well, you know, we talked about that and the, what that verse is really talking about is look, seek the Lord while your heart is not hard. Because if you don't seek him now, there will reach a point where your heart becomes hard and you're not going to find him. And, and here is a description of a hard heart. Someone, verse 12, who's saying, come on, let's just go get drunk. Let's take intoxic- intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant, meaning tomorrow we're going to have more blessings than we have today. No, judgment was going to come. Verse 1 of chapter 57, the righteous perish and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. Now, this is really a picture of of the rapture here. Um, it says, no one considers that the righteous, righteous is taken away from evil. Some of that was happening at the time right before Nebuchadnezzar came in for the final time and just destroyed Jerusalem. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego were actually, some of the righteous servants of God were removed from the city prior to the time where God just, just came in and flattened it. The first Thessalonians says the righteous are not appointed for wrath. And that's why one of the scriptures that strongly supports the rapture before the tribulation, where the book of, described in Revelation, where 
a third of the earth, this population is going to be destroyed. And, and just unspeakable judgment coming on the earth. First Thessalonians says the righteous are not appointed to wrath. The church in Philadelphia is told, because of your faithfulness, you won't have to see any of that, any of the uh, the the tribulation that is going to come on the earth. So it's interesting while these people... In verse 12, they're getting drunk, saying, oh, tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. Meanwhile, the Lord is removing the righteous from the place of judgment. Uh, and it says in verse 1, no one's considering that, that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their bed, each one walking in his uprightness. Uh, in many respects, you know, they got to Babylon and, and many of those that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel, they were given favor there. They were protected there. Verse 3, but come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? So they're, <laughs> they're mocking the righteous there. They're ridiculing the righteous. It says, are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree? And we know that this is talking about prior to the exile here, prior to the time that Jerusalem was destroyed, prior to the time that many of them were dragged away and put into exile, because the time in Babylon really did cure them of their idolatry. They ceased to worship, you know, false idols or statues, this type of thing. Jews had a number of problems after they came back from Babylon, uh, worshiping uh, pagan gods was not one of them. But here in verse 5, it says, they're inflaming themselves with gods under every green tree. And so that was just a practice um, of worship where just out in the open under certain, in, in certain gardens, there'd just be open sexual immorality there and they inflame themselves with lust. And then it says, and slaying the children in the valleys. And I've explained this before that they, Worship one of the, I believe it was the Ammonite gods, Molech, where the children would be sacrificed. And this all did happen during the time of Manasseh, uh, prior to the time that Jerusalem was judged. Uh, under the clefts of the rock, verse 6, among the smooth stones of the stream is your por portion. They, they are your lot. Even to them, you have poured a drink offering. You have offered a grain offering. So a drink offering and grain offerings were in the Mosaic law of what was supposed to be done to the, at the temple of God. But they here are offering them to foreign gods. And he's confronting them here. Should I receive comfort in these? So they've, they've, they've sort of, prostituted God's offering 
and they're sort of mixing. They've created a religion of really their own where they're sort of mixing um, the, the, the worship of Jehovah with the worship of other gods. And he's saying in verse 6, should I receive comfort in these? Verse 6, on a lofty and high mountain you have set your bed. So one of the t- places they would... Um, uh, worship foreign gods was on the top of mountains called the high places. And they would go up there, they'd do their things. It says at first, end of verse 7, even there you went up to offer sacrifice. Also behind the doors and their posts, you have set up your remembrance. In other words, behind the doors and their posts, that appears to mean in the privacy of their home, they're just setting up all these idols. You know, do you guys, I have a question for you this evening, do you have idols in your home? Not necessarily a, a, a statue to a to a foreign god, but is there idolatry there? Is there I don't know video games that you've set up as an idol, or 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 pornography, or, or have you done, have you set up something as it says here behind the doors and your posts? It says, you have set up your remembrance, for you have uncovered yourself to those other than me. You've uncovered yourself, meaning you're opening up your heart to those other than the Lord. Are we setting up idols inside of our house? If so, we'll read about this a little more. We need to get rid of them. And says, you have gone up to them, you have enlarged your bed, you have made a covenant with them, you have loved their bed when you saw their nudity. Again, just speaking of harlotry, of prostituting themselves with other religions, other faiths, and and this type of thing, And, and, and... and you know, sometimes it can be so subtle. We, at, when I was in Brazil a couple of weeks ago, some person came up. They were they were not in the church service. They came up after the church service, and and some point someone mentioned the devil. Uh, and uh, this person says, "Oh, you're not supposed to say the, even that name. You're not even supposed to speak out a negative word." And they went into their what what really amounted to their religion, which was. You're never supposed to say a negative thing. So you're not supposed to mention the devil. You're not supposed to speak critically of, of anything. You're not supposed to mention the word hell. And, and, and the person eventually just got exasperated and, and they, and they ran away. Well, that is a religion. That is a form of idolatry. It's a very popular one in the United States of America. It's sort of the positive thinking uh, kind of uh, of thing, and it says, but then it says, it's interesting here in verse um, ten. It says, "You are wearied in the length of your way." So here is the Lord just crying out to them, saying, "Look, you've been in all this sin, but look at your life. You're sick of your own sin. You're sick of your own." Uh, way of life that you are in. You're wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say there's no hope. You have found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. Uh, And 
oh man, is this one of the most frustrating things where there's someone in your family or a friend or someone who's just trashed their life. They've completely trashed their life with sin. And, and, and yet, and, and you can just go up to them and say, look, you, you're wearied in the length of your way, like Isaiah said. You, you, you're miserable. Don't you get it? Don't you know you need Jesus? Ah! But it's like, uh, they just, you know, they don't get it. Verse 10, yet you did not say there's no hope. In other words, you're not getting to the, you're at the bottom of the barrel, but you're, you're, you're scraping at the bottom of a barrel trying to find hope. Well, you're not going to find it there. Verse 11, and of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me? In other words, they don't fear God. And of whom have you been afraid or feared? that you have lied and not remembered me. Let me tell you, there's a fear of God that is so healthy, that is so healthy for a nation. When I was nine years old, my parents we, we moved the whole family down to uh, South America, to, to Venezuela, a country in South America. It, it now has the highest murder rate one of the highest murder rates in the world. It's El Salvador, Venezuela, and there's like some place in Africa. It's just just outrageous. There's, I think they're saying that they're going to reach 19,000 murders uh, this year in a country of 28 million people. When last time I visited Caracas, the capital, there had been a hundred murders per weekend for 12 consecutive weeks, and I still have uncles and cousins there. And my uncle, who's not even a Christian. I, I said, well, why is this happening? This is completely crazy. And he says, they just don't have a fear of God anymore. It's a Catholic country. The, the Catholic Church has just lost any kind of influence on the country anymore. There's no fear of God. <laughs> and, and, and when I say, again, I've, I, when I say fear of God, I'm not talking about the kind of fear that a child has of an abusive or irrational father. I, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about just the, the fear, a healthy fear, where you realize, you know, God's in charge, he's holy, and if I step out of his way, he has every single right as God to come and whack me hard. <laughs> That's the uh, healthy fear of, uh, uh, of God, because sometimes in our life, you know, that, that faith, that trust in that Lord, that desire to, to obey his, uh, his, his laws just because he's blessed us so much, sometimes that falls by the wayside. But if, if what you have left when that happens is a healthy fear of God, you're in a very safe place because the feeling's going to return, I guarantee you, if you're a child of God. But having that healthy fear of God, in verse 11 says, and, and of whom have you you've been afraid or feared? The answer is no one. You have lied, you have not remembered me, nor taken it to your heart. Is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you did not fear me? Are you guys following that? He's saying, the reason you haven't feared me is because I've suffered long. I've withheld judgment. He says, is it not because I have held my peace from of old? In other words, I didn't come against you and just strike you and smite you. <laughs> and you've taken the lack of punishment, the lack of chastening as, oh, this is all okay. This is all okay that... Uh, that nothing has happened here. 
I remember a sermon that Pastor Scott gave years and years ago. Just It was a great illustration of just the Jews, after they left the wilderness, they were given the Mosaic laws. Every seven years, they were, they were supposed to rest the land. And apparently, they never, even once, obeyed that law. So in that first seventh year, they were supposed to rest the land. It was a Sabbath year. But they didn't do it. And in the eighth year, they're like, hmm, nothing happened. Guess this is okay. And when the fourteenth year came, well, it didn't. Nothing happened last time. And then you know, a, a, again and again and again, and 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 so, when they were finally exiled, how many years? It was seventy years they were exiled in it. In one year, for every year they had not obeyed that particular law, which is, what's, what's 70 times 7? 490? So for 490 years, they had just, was that right? Is that my math right? 70 times 7. Here's the guy. Is my math right? Your math, the math you know is a little bit more complicated than that, but um, the math and physics people around here. But, um, uh, and, it's, and, and, and it's the same concept here. It says, you're not fearing me because I've held my peace from a bull. I haven't swatted you hard. I haven't chased you. I haven't disciplined you because I love you, and I don't want you to perish. Verse twelve, and but I, verse twelve, but I will declare your righteousness and your work. So, here's another shift here in the prophecy. I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you when you cry out. And you let your, the collection of your idols deliver you, but the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them, but he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land. So he's just, he's just, there's, here's a prophetic word here. There's going to come a time where all the idols will go. And that is what happened. That's what happened during that 70 year period. You never see Israelites again putting up idols of foreign gods. Of course, they still have idols, idols of materialism, that type of thing. But um, as far as going after Molech, going after the Baals, these type of the Ashtoreths, the high places, and, and uh, you don't see that ever again characterizing Israel. It says, a breath will take them. The wind will carry them all, verse 13, away. It's an interesting prophecy there. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land. So not everyone, but he who puts his trust in me. Regrettably, tragically, only a very small percentage of people, when they were called back to Israel, came back to Israel. Uh, but it says, those who put their trust in me, they shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And no one shall say... And uh, rather, and one shall say, heap it up, heap it up. <laughs> now, what is that? Heap it up, heap it up. It says, and one shall say, heap it up, heap it up. And so what this meant, this was something that was cried out when a, when a king was coming into a particular city. And actually what it meant was that clear the stone, clear the roads of all the rocks and just put them up in piles on the side. And there's... 
I was reading some guy in the year 1837 was in Palestine and actually heard this exact same expression when uh, one of the rulers or whatever was coming into the land. Heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way. Take the stumbling block out of the way of the people. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. That word contrite, it is the uh, Hebrew word for crushed. And so one who goes before the Lord with a humble and contrite spirit, humility, emptying yourself of pride, poor in spirit. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? People who have emptied themselves of pride of themselves are poor in spirit. They're humble. You know, one of the best weapons that you have as a Christian when you're in affliction, when people are coming against you, if there's someone coming against you at work or a neighbor or whoever, and they're just coming against you, I suggest that your two greatest weapons are these. Number one, prayer, going into the conflict with prayer. And number two, going into with, with great humility. There's something about humility when you go into a conflict with humility where someone just, whatever, hates your guts, they don't like your idea, they don't like you, they don't like whatever, your, your bald head. Um, and, <laughs> and they're coming against you. There's something so disarming about humility where you can just disable that person coming against you by, not com- by coming against them in, in really the opposite spirit. They're coming... Uh, against you with. Peter, First Peter 5.10 says, God resists the proud. Whenever I see a Christian where there's pride in their life, I just, my heart hurts for them because they have put themselves in opposition of God himself. It's like trying to wage war with, try to, to being on the side of a cliff and trying to punch it out. It, it's just never gonna, it's ne- the pride God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5.10, James 4.6, they both uh, quote that same verse. Second Chronicles 7.14, very often quoted verse, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land humble themselves. So I like that. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. Jesus really only described himself one time in the whole New Testament, rather giving a better way of saying it. He only attributed one adjective to himself, or two words that really mean the same thing. It was in Matthew chapter 11. I am meek and lowly of heart. You, you never hear him describing himself again other than that one verse. I am meek 
and lowly of heart. Verse 13, I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit of the Lord would fail before me, and the souls which I have made for the iniquity of his covetousness. I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart, but I've seen his ways, and I will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord. I will heal him. I will heal him. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul speaks of Jesus fulfilling this promise. He says, he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who are near. He, 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 he quotes this verse, and then it says, it says in verse 20, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God for the wicked. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Don't be deceived when you see whatever TV or billboards with the, you know, the, the, the people living wicked lives and it seems like they're carefree. It seems like they don't have a trouble uh, in their lives. Nothing could be further than the truth. Madonna went on record as saying she doesn't have a single friend who is not an emotional cripple. Leviticus 26, describing the curse that's on the life of a person who poses God, it says that, um, it says of them, it says, it's just really, it's describing a mental illness that will set upon them over time. I will send faintness into the hearts of, into the lands of their enemies. The sounds of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. They shall flee as though fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another as it were before a sword when no one pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. He was talking to... Israel there when they, what would happen to them when they entered into a season of rebellion, but this really is true. There is no peace for the wicked. And then in chapter 58, what time do we have right now? Time anyone? Quarter till? All right, we're going to break a record and go three chapters. Plenty of time. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your tr voice like a trumpet, Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. It says, yet they seek me daily. So this is going to go back to, this is going to go, it's, it's another shift here in, in chapter 58. It's going from, at the end of 57, uh, sort of a prophetic voice that, look, some of you are going to repent, you're going to turn to me, and I'm going to establish you. But then he goes right back to sort of confronting them in, in, in a season where they have rejected them and says, cry aloud and spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression. So he, 
it says, he, he, it says, tell my people their transgression. Tell it to them. Tell it to them. Let the house of Jacob know their sins. It says, they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As a nation, they do righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. In other words, they're doing all the religious stuff is what he's saying there. They ask me of the ordinance of justice. They delight in approaching God. So they come to God. They approach him. They offer their sacrifices. But then they ask in verse 3, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen. So they're speaking to God here. You know, we're going through this fast, and yet we're not seeing your hand. Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find no pleasure. And then it gives a reason. Why? Because you exploit your labors. In other words, you go through religious exercises. You come to church, and then you go right into work, and you're a harsh taskmaster. You're a harsh taskmaster. Your religion, you know, your your religion, your church. We were talking about this this morning. You're just showing up at church. It was just wonderful to see Jesus teaching in the synagogue. Then he goes right into the house, and he has the same heart of love. But here they're fasting. They're they're presenting an offering before the Lord. Then they go on 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 Sunday morning, which was their first day of the week. They would, you know, after Sabbath, they would go and and they would just start exploiting the, the, the workers. Verse 4, Indeed, you fast for strife and de- debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. In other words, there was wickedness coming against them. In other words, they were in a bad circumstance, so they went into a fast. Lord, help me, help me, help me, help me, Lord, from this circumstance that, the, that I'm in. I, I'm, I'm fasting is, is, is the idea here. It says, you will not fast as you did this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it not a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that you break Every yoke, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover them and not hide yourself from your own flesh. It says, then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing like shall spring forth speedily. In other words, do you want some refreshing in your life? Do you want to see the hand of God in your life? Do this fast. Reach out to people. Bless people. Bless the poor. Be a good husband. Be a good wife. Serve your children. Go to work. Bless your employees. Bless your boss. That's the fast that I want. Now, this, of course, is not saying here, you could read verse 5. It's like, oh, I guess God doesn't want us to, to fast ever. Because it says here, is it not? Is is it a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? This is what these people were doing. It, just like Jesus says, look, you want to fast? Don't go all forlorn and oh, I'm fasting and you know you don't shave and and this type of thing, so everyone knows you're fasting. That's not the fast that I want. This is the fast I want. 
I want you to loose the bonds of wickedness. I want you to repent. And if you see injustice around you, I want you to shout out and do something about it. I, 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 you know, it, it, I, I, if, if there are people being neglected in your streets and in, in, in your country, I want you to do something about it. Don't just come to church all dressed up in your nice clothes and this type of thing and, and, and leave and ignore the need that is around you every day. We have a great opportunity with, you know, Don taking over leadership of the Boston Rescue Mission to, to minister to these very people that we're speaking about right here. Of course, we have other outreaches as well, but this is just, you know, but ah, the flesh, urgh, you know, you're going to go talk with this guy who's just going to cuss in your face. And yes, that they, they do do that sometimes down there. Or maybe it was just me. Uh, but uh, it happened once or twice when I was there. But uh, our flesh doesn't like that. We like polite people. We like being around people who look and act like we do. But listen, what it's saying here is if... If, if, if you're going to just fast and seek me and pray and, Lord, I need a breakthrough in my life, but the, the rest of your week, you're not reaching out and blessing people. Forget it. You're not going to see any answered prayer from me. But the good news is, verse um, 5 through 7, if you obey me and you do a fast where you're actually serving the people around you, verse 8, your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear God. I just always love... um, Psalm 37, commit your way to the Lord, trust also to in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring your forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday sun. And that's the idea here. Verse 9, then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. Look, if you don't see, if, if there are certain prayers in your life that are not being answered, you really should just as a habit go before the Lord and say, Lord, am I in some sin? Don't always just assume, well, God must must be telling me to wait. Don't assume that. Or God just says the answer is no. Don't assume the answer is no. Go before the Lord and say, Lord, is there some sin? And he will let you know, by the way. If you're a born-again Christian, you have the Spirit of God inside of you, he'll let you know. He will expose sin in your life. That may be the answer. It says, then, verse 9, you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger. I love that, huh? A judgmental spirit, the Lord may tell you, I'm not answering your prayer because you've been pointing your fingers at everybody. Saying, oh, this person, and this is this issue, and that person, you know, uh, they're doing this in my life, and, and, oh man, is it hard being around a judgmental Christian. Just a, a Christian who's just, everything is, 
you know, they do everything but take responsibility for their own actions. It's, it's everyone else's fault. And I like this. If you take away the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry, he's not letting up here, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought. Praise the Lord. And strengthen your bones. You shall be like a well-watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Jesus says in John chapter 7, he who believes in me, springs or uh, living water will flow forth from within him. Almost certainly, this is one of the verses that he had in mind. He is actually a fulfillment of this verse. Is that cool? You shall be like a well-watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail when he's speaking to the woman at the well. So I have a water that I'll give you. You won't thirst again, or you won't have to go somewhere else to try to, to thirst, to try to satisfy your, your thirst. You shall be like a, sorry, third time, watered garden. What a great picture. Just a Christian. I mean, that is a great picture of a, a, a woman or a man who's just abiding in Christ. You look at them, they're just like a well-watered garden. Praise the Lord. Verse 12, those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundation of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. And certainly this is the role of those this had a fulfillment, actually, and and those in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra who went back and restored uh, the walls and the temple. But it's also the testimony and the history that God will create in your own life, a repair of the breach, a restore of streets, a restore of relationships. God will use you. He will use you to restore people's relationships. Verse 13, if you... But then, uh, but then it says, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy days of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words... You know, every time I do marriage counseling, I always get the same response. I tell the, the husband what his responsibilities are before the Lord. And then I tell the wife what her responsibilities are before the Lord. And without exception, one of them usually says, but what if I do all that? And she doesn't change. She just keeps on ragging on me, treating me with contempt, lack of disrespect, lack of respect, rather. 
And I always say the same thing. Relationships are not 50-50. They're 100%, 100%. And if you're loving your wife like Christ loves the church, how did he love the church? He went to the cross and died. So if she doesn't change, you go to the cross with Jesus. He said, anyone who wants to follow me, pick up your cross and follow me. Where did he go? Where did Jesus go? Where did Jesus go? To the cross. That's right, to the cross. Recently, I was um, I was in uh, with a guy, a Christian man, and uh, who, who's married, and he's having some issues in his marriage. And his son actually came into the room while I was talking with him, and uh, the mom of the house had was really upset about a whole bunch of things and some conflict had been brought into the home and she had just really just started giving the husband a hard time. And the son, of all people, comes into the room and says, hey, Dad, look at this proverb I found. Is what son? And he says, it's better to live on the corner of a roof than in the house of uh, a quarrelsome woman. And he's like, he's like, be quiet, be quiet. I don't want, want your mother to hear that. And besides, I'm the responsibility. I have to die. I have to go to the cross. And that's the case. That's always the case. And I love how what this says. It says, if you turn your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, and shall honor him, not not doing your own ways, nor find your own pleasure. So if you're just always looking for your own pleasure in marriage, husband, if you're always looking for your own pleasure in marriage, wife, you're not going to have a marriage that thrives ever. And so when they say, well, what do I do if they just continue the same kind of behavior? Well, you're seeking your own pleasure. Your marriage isn't going to work if that's your attitude. nor speaking your own words. It says, then. In other words, essentially this is describing someone who, who is going to the cross. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of earth and feed with the heritage of Jacob, your father. The mouth of the Lord is spoken. You know, the question does come up in verse 13. Uh, if you turn your foot away from the Sabbath. So what does this mean for us? Um, there is one of the Ten Commandments is obey the Sabbath. Don't do any work on the Sabbath. There are two interpretations. One is that Jesus is our Sabbath and that we don't, um, we no longer, uh, it, it no longer applies to us. It was unique to Israel. It says six days you shall work, the seventh day you shall keep it holy. And so one of the arguments is is that there's, there's no longer any Sabbath. And by the way, um, if if you insist on a Sabbath, you should be working six days. Uh, but there's you know another another other Christians who look into it say, look, it's one of the Ten Commandments. It's not specifically done away with. You know, I you just need to look into the Word of God and decide on your own. I do know that this, the Sabbath is sort of written, in one sense, it's written into the creation. The Lord rested on the Sabbath on the seventh day. 
and I'm sort of suspect um, with the person who's like, oh, yeah, I can work seven days a week and never rest. You know, that's not the will of God. <laughs> um, I do believe that that Christians should be setting aside a day uh, a week, and, you know, it's, it's the Lord's day. In one sense, though, the, 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 you know, there are a whole bunch of laws surrounding the Sabbath that are, that are unique to Israel. The most important thing is, though, is that, you know, I like how it says, for those who believe that Christ is the fulfillment of the Sabbath and Jesus is our Sabbath, I love it here. It says, and to those who, who, Turn away your foot from the Sabbath. It says, and call the Sabbath a delight. He says, you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and you shall feed with the heritage of Jacob, your father. That's true, man. If you call Jesus your Sabbath a delight, if you seek him and make him your delight, you're going to feed on the heritage of the Lord. You're going to just be blessed. God's going to bless your coming and going. Not that your life is going to be without trouble, uh, but the Lord Jesus will be in that trouble with you. And so uh, that's chapter 58, and we will resume next week in chapter 59.